You're listening to episode 181 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna, and it's Monday the 21st of March here in Norwich as we're recording, and spring has finally sprung here in Norwich. It's looking lovely and sunny. On the show today, we are joined by Kairani Baraka and Rishi Dastadar. But before I hand over to them both, I just wanted to flag that our latest online creative writing courses, which we design in partnership with University of East Anglia, are now on sale for the semester beginning the 3rd of May. We've got 12-week courses in fiction, poetry, crime fiction, creative non-fiction, script writing, memoir and historical fiction, as well as a more in-depth 24-week fiction writing course for intermediate students. Our brilliant tutors for this semester include Monique Roffey, who is the winner of the Costa Book of the Year, and Forward Prize winning poet Rebecca Goss, and many other fantastically talented people. Places fill up quickly on these courses, and they're always a sellout, so make sure to book your place now by visiting the website nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Now back to Oka and Rishi. Oka's an Indonesian writer and artist living in London. She's the co-editor of Stairs and Whispers, Deaf and Disabled Poets Write Back, the author-illustrator of Indigenous Species, and author of the debut poetry collection Rope, which was one of our book club picks last year. She was Modern Poetry and Translation's inaugural Poet-in-Residence. She was NCW's Associate Artist in 2020, and she's been a researcher-in-residence at UAL's Decolonising the Arts Institute. Rishi's debut collection, Ticker Tape, is published by Nine Arches Press, and his work has been published by Financial Times, New Scientist, and the BBC, among many others. Ocker and Rishi are poets and stablemates of independent poetry publisher Nine Arches Press. This is a fantastic deep dive into the unconscious process of writing poetry and what they both call the days of writing, as well as the environmental elements of Ocker's writing. So now I'll hand over to Ocker and Rishi for their amazing conversation. Hi, I'm Rishi and I'm delighted to be here today speaking with Oka, my Nine Arches stablemate, about her new book, Ultimatum Orangutan, which, if you've not read it yet, is just a wonderful and mind-stretching collection, which will give you a radically different perspective on ecology, colonial politics, the debt that we owe the rest of the planet, and lots and lots of other good stuff like that. So it's so nice to be here with you because uh, we've, we're both stable mates at Nine Arches Press. Mm, that's right. And uh, we've both just published our second books with Nine Arches. In your case, Saffron Jack after Ticker Tape, and in my case, Ultimatum Orangutan after Rope. Um, and we, I also had the honor of having a draft manuscript of Ultimatum Orangutan read by Rishi. Uh, and, and I also had the great um, honor and fortune to read a draft manuscript of Saffron Jack before it was published. So um, we shared comments with each other in the process of each other's books, which I think is a, and it's, it's such a treat to be able to have, you know, after publication of these books come, come to this space. Yeah. I, and so I guess to carry the conversation further, I think it's uh, almost throwing a little light onto, onto your process and thinking about how you might have reached some of the places that you've reached in the poems and then and then fitting that into the wider artistic and 
life of activism that you have as well. But I wonder, actually, just to give a flavour of what we're talking about, would you mind reading a poem from the book? Oh, gosh. Just to start. (laughs) I don't know why I wasn't expecting that, but but of course, I'm ready. I'm a poet. Let's go. All right. (laughs) I think I will read out Perimeter Blues. Squint wishing a mist to rise from the ether of beach resorts deadened, sand returning its infinite color, bark lying still for a hundred years, children led back to the bay where once it spat away ownership when most knew the names for a shore's domed soul and dialect. My God, you're right, the sea, all land adjacent, God's spirit cordoned from me, sit here while toes feel an ocean goddess. And she, Nirorokidul, quietly ascertains that security will be coming for us shortly. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Um, That was beautifully read. So I'm going to now be really unfair and ask the question. So where does this come from? Where did <laughs> where did, where did this start? Uh, all right. So this particular poem, you mean, Perimeter Blues. Mm, yes. um, so it was first published in Poetry Review. Um, and I wrote it about the fact that, so Indonesia, where I'm from, has the world's largest coastline, simply because we have so many Mm -hmm. islands to have coastlines. (laughs) So it's over 17,000 islands. Um, And I'm Minang Javanese, and Nirorokidul is the Javanese ocean goddess of the Southern Ocean. And um, in mythology, in the way the mythology was presented to me, you know, in TV shows and different things, she was always this really fearsome character, you know, someone who was an evil... um, uh, an evil practitioner of dark arts and swallowing up sailors and all of this. And the older I get, I sort of have a an empathy with her and also thinking about, you know, all these, uh, um, and, and the, I'm, I'm obviously as, as an adult, I'm thinking about the ways in which women who are powerful are presented as being threatening, right, in mythology. Um, and then also the fact that just... Uh, you know, an observation that so much of the coastline that was once public land is now owned by beach resorts and locals can't even access that place anymore when it, you know, has spiritual resonance for them. Um, so this is sort of an imagined sneaking into a beach resort um, in order to access that that connection with Nyurorokido, with the ocean goddess, and to sit there. But she understands that security is going to be coming for us because it's no longer our beach. So, um, yeah, I just, I just really wanted to, to show how privatization is. There's no, um, so two academics that I quote for an article at, at the back of this book, um, Zoe uh, Todd and Heather Davis, um, and Zoe Todd's an indigenous scholar, um, talks about how Anthropocene shouldn't be measured from just the past hundred years, Anthropocene actually began with the beginning of European colonization, because it it severs in their in their language, drawing from lots of indigenous traditions, it severs these connections between nature, mind, and body. And I feel like this poem, Perimeter Blues, is an example of how, like, even in my own culture, like I can't separate not being able to access all of the southern coast shoreline. <laughs> 
you know, unless I go pay to be at a resort or work there somehow as probably mm-hmm. an underpaid, you know, local, um, with, with, uh, this need to, you know, reclaim a lot of the planet. You yeah. can't separate that from mind or from body or from spirituality. So, yeah. Okay. So, so it's clear that you've been thinking, you know, around this for, for ages and yeah i i well know yeah that sense of something has been (laughs) bubbling away or at least in the subconscious or somewhere beyond that reach of the phraseology that you might want to start to get to and so yeah it's always just interesting hearing that depth that's gone into what is you know yeah six stanzas yeah just hearing that but can you can you pinpoint a moment when you moved from all that hinterland into into what a first draft started to look like. Was there was, was there a really... phrase that opened it up or an image? Yeah, I I, I just um, was about to say when you said you know we are all familiar with something brewing in the back of our minds, and I think honestly, at least for me, so much of poetry writing is unconscious. You know, ah. like, I mean, do you, I mean, I think it's really rare for me to be like, okay, I'm gonna, I make a bullet point list of all the threads mm-hmm. this poem is going to come through because yeah. the act of poetry, as you yourself know, being <laughs> the editor of a book entitled The Craft. <laughs> well, no, you know, a lot of times it's the poetry making that is the sense making rather than, you know, the sort of planning beforehand, I'm going to put all this in a poem. I think it comes from, you know, like neuroses and things that you've been, you have been mulling about, you know, in in the case of this poem from childhood, just things that I know and understand, but never really articulated for myself in that way. Um, And so I think it was, um, I think it was just this image of sneaking into a beach resort and just being there on the beach, just to experience something that should be rightfully our communities rather than, you know, owned by a Russian investor somewhere. Um, and, and with that, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Then rhythms happen, then cadence happens. And I'm not sure I can, I think it's a little bit of a daze that I at least go into. Would you agree that that's. I, so I thought, yeah, days, I think is a very interesting way of putting it actually, because I think, this is one of the things that it's almost often hard to communicate to to people who aren't poets, writers who aren't poets, even beginning poets. That sense of um, how have you arrived at where you've arrived at is not necessarily a, pro- a process of logical planning no, or a process, of, yeah, or a process of. Yeah, I know exactly how I'm going to go from A to A to B via A one, A two, whatever that might be. Yeah. Um, and that and that idea of sense through making, I characterize it as, uh, yeah, as discovering through language. Mm. Yeah, in in the sense of yeah, you're adding to that sense of I only know what I think about through writing about it, but yeah, you. You can't rationally pull out what is in the subconscious mind. There's, yeah, there, there's a, there's a, a point at which you have to switch off, and that's where the daze is, yes. isn't it? And then, and then when you come out of that, then you look and then you go, oh, okay, yeah. Now what do I make of this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's sort of a, 
that horribly um, <laughs> common Steve Jobs anecdote about you can only connect the dots looking back kind of thing. Um, <laughs> not sure I wanted to quote Steve Jobs just now. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? In the sense of, I think that we can order things logically after the fact, after the poem is created. And then even with a first draft, we can see, oh, I'm going in this direction, right? And then we align the poem to be more in that direction, um, which you don't always get right the first time, as you know, takes drafts a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, that is the fun of it, uh, Yeah, I, I think, which is often a thing that gets forgotten as well. Yeah, this idea, this is not a thing that ever has to be right first time. This is not a thing that ever needs to be right first is a great sentence. You know, I mean, it, it's there. It, it, yeah, it it's there to be uncovered. So then, so let me be not if not provocative. Do you enjoy the days? Yes, I love the days. I live for the days. I feel like I've structured my life so as to be able to not every day for sure, maybe not even every week, but to mm-hmm. to regularly encounter the days. <laughs> 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 this is not. We're not advocating for any. This is not, it sounds like a drug. Yeah. It, <laughs> thing, yeah, but yeah. Mean, come, come get your legal writing high. Yes, yes <laughs> the natural high of, of writing um, and being in the days. And, and I think that it's interesting to talk about the days in the context of forming a whole collection. And this is something that I'd love, you know, it's great to be in conversation with you because as I discussed, you know, we sent our draft manuscripts to few trusted readers, got back feedback and all of this. Did that do anything for you in terms of the days of creating a, a collection or is or is the formation of a collection in terms of ordering and everything not part of the days that you're talking about? Uh, for me, it's not. Okay. And my, yeah, and my process is, I think, uh, partly betrays the fact that, yeah, academically I have far more of a, a, a rationalist logical training the, the yeah the perils of doing history and economics as uh, you know Didn't uh, you do ppe no history modern, i did modern history but you know so the most um the most rational of the humanities as mm. it were so i like scaffolding i like i like structures i like patterning and of course there's a wonderful tension there between that and the days, the moment of the creation, that gathering rush of finding stuff. And so I find, for me, my process is the act of that, that act of creation, that 20 minutes, that half an hour to actually get the words on the page. Yeah, that's that. But the process of dreaming something that's 50, 60, 70 poems into, into a life and a shape is is a deeper, longer-term process, but something that I'm more conscious of rather than, yeah. And certainly, say, for Ticker Tape, I knew where I wanted to start, where I wanted to end with that. Oh, wow. And what, and what, and what had to be in the middle. But this, is where, but this is where collaboration comes in because I couldn't see my way through anything else. And so that, at that point giving the manuscript to Jane Kamane, our editor yes. at Nine Arches, and basically throwing up my hands and saying, help, mm. what happens now? Oh my gosh, that's such a great moment, though, to know, okay, I'm at the point where I've done all I can, please help me. <laughs> mm, yeah, and 
and I think it'll be interesting to sort of compare notes mm. on sort of the conversations you had with Jane about this, but certainly the conversations we had was, yeah, even if, yeah, even if they're not necessarily things that are detected by readers in terms of the shape and the structure and what you have if to any, know, you uh, have to know what yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so we went through long conversations about, what is it the book trying to do here? What is the book trying to do here? Right, and it was only when, purpose, yeah. yeah, and it was only once we'd settled on those that we went, okay, yeah, yeah. that makes sense now. Mm-hmm. So I, it sounds like you went through something similar with Jane in, in organizing. Yeah, and actually it was through, it was a gradual process. Um, even the right, I think a few things happened last year that really crystallized what the book ends up looking like so I think that the even the draft that I'd sent you looks quite a bit different I think you noticed from from the final result um one was the actual writing of the titular poem ultimatum orangutan and when that finally came out and that all of these things were things that's been bubbling in me since childhood you know then that became okay so this is the title because I, I love the title of the poem so much I was like okay then this is the title and that title tells you a lot and um, even things like, okay, now I know what the cover is going to be. You know, I wanted my hand with the like the energy Hadouken and the bulldozer. Um, originally, there were going to be stars in the background, but that's a whole other <laughs> decision <laughs> that I abandoned. Um, but, uh, and then another poem that really helped crystallize what the book was going to be is um, the Terjaga, the four-part Terjaga um, segments in the book that break up the book. So that was all originally one poem. And then um, someone said to me, you know, I think this should be f- in parts. I think I think Bonnie yeah. Kapodeo said to me, I think this should be in parts rather than one long poem. And then I was like, oh, you know what? These these are the, you know, these are the the interludes. These are the interludes that yes. all connect yeah, 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 yeah. and also speak about, you know, climate change and environmental injustice from a like an anti-colonial perspective. Mm, right? mm, um, mm. And acknowledging because I do think that a lot of talk about climate justice and environmental justice doesn't acknowledge the fact that there have been so many genocides and apocalypses that have happened to us before (laughs) as a result of colonialism and it's now it's only gotten so bad that people in protected areas can feel them or are afraid of them but the the all the destruction has been happening people have been dying and you know uh, whole communities have been broken up like this isn't new um I recently did an event for Asian American Writers Workshop with um Heoli Osorio at the University of Hawaii and the title of the event was um we have lived this ending before which comes mm, mm, and I think yeah that's that's exactly it and I'm I love the fact that I'm finding friends for this book <laughs> like, <laughs> like let's have play dates with you know I think I told, I told Craig Santos Perez like his book Habitat Threshold I was like I immediately read that book and I thought, oh, Ultimatum Orangutan has a friend, you know, which is, can't believe I said that out loud, but he was like, no, I think they are friends. And I was like, our book babies are friends. <laughs> this is great. Because I think this is a time in which like indigenous people and people of color are speaking about crises through our eyes and through our lived experience. Um, so I didn't want this to be a typical quote unquote nature poem book that doesn't look at the politics. Um of what even what is meant by nature like I um 
I went to Union Go to Scholarship to Uni in the States and I, you know, did environmental lit class and I, you know, read Thoreau, read, you know, Walden, Robert Frost, all white men <laughs> speaking, you know, about and Whitman, like, you know, nature from their point of view, <laughs> obviously omitting the fact that it's on stolen land <laughs> um, and like even national parks in the States, you know, people, Oh, conservation, but it's all, it's, it's on stolen land still, you know, and I, and I, I'm quite literal about decolonization, meaning land back and meaning. And in my view, decolonization also then has to mean like, if you're a corporation that has taken up so much land in places like Indonesia, like that can't be like this land has to go back to indigenous peoples because it's the only way we're going to survive. Like we're, indigenous peoples are the most um, effective uh, caretakers and stewards of mm, the rainforest, mm. but are being kicked out all the time yeah. from these homes. Um, so, so can so that so that ties in with something that struck me a lot in that yeah you know. In that that shift from first draft to second draft, and suddenly, yeah, not suddenly, but yeah, it feels like the the politics, yeah, is so yeah, is so is so full throated in in the final book, and it's wonderful because of that, because yeah, because uh, yeah, the urgency and the fierceness with 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 which that's expressed, how yeah, how much. when you're considering that, are you thinking this needs to act as almost as an introduction for readers who won't have thought about yeah you know, the 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 colonial aspect of ecocide? How much does it need to be unapologetic and say, look, you will find your own way in, but you have to hear this the latter. point of view. <laughs> So, uh, so, so, talk, so I guess talk us through that sort of that more conscious decision. I mean, I've always written about the environment in some way or another. Like even in Rope, I would write about nature, right? And my mm, first book, mm. Indigenous Species, was very full throated, political, unapologetic, just literally knife in the water, you know, with Indigenous species. And I, I remember, you know, just moving to the UK, twenty fifteen never lived in the UK before, like just fully saying this is who I am unapologetically. And I think Mm, that mm. I've been here now six years. And what I'm trying to dispel is this thinking of like, oh, but the market, like, oh, but will white readers understand this? Because even if we say constantly, like, we don't need to think about that, like that's complete kowtowing and whitewashing. It Because of the nature of the industry, as you well know, you know, we can't help but I'll think about that a little bit. Like, why is this, why would this maybe not get the reach that, you know, white nature poetry would, right? But I, you can't think about that. And you have to try, my goal is to try and be as unapologetic as possible. Um, and because I don't want to dilute any of it. Um, and I think that, you know, I'll, as someone who works in translation as well, there's so many books translated from English that Indonesian people read, and we're just supposed to know what a trifle is, you know? <laughs> we're, just supposed to, <laughs> like, we're just supposed to know what plimsolls are or whatever, you yeah, know? Like, yeah, or, yeah. or, you know, or even like the royal family and stuff. And it's it's not explained because it's expected you're going to have to find that out. Um, or you Or this should be known. And I kind of like, um, that's something that Indonesian readers of Ultimatum Orangutan have, have noted to me and Jane, like, 
oh, this whole book, it doesn't explain every single thing that's in Indonesian or every single thing. And I'm like, yeah, that I mean, I'm glad. It does explain some things in the back, but um, for the most part, yeah. So, and I think that touches on something that's really interesting and also I was going to say quietly subversive but it's actually not at Uh-oh. all the, the no I, I, but in a really good way that sort of that challenging of expected or, or what we don't even think of as expected hierarchies of information and yeah and almost yeah expected idioms because as you were saying that I was thinking yeah because it's you know especially you know coming from a background as i do where you know english is first language there's so much by way of popular culture and references and idioms that you know that you grow up saturated in and yeah and you unthinkingly assume that they are shared and just to actually have them batted back and have other yeah other idioms and other references treated with that same yeah, that same level of status is brilliantly refreshing and yeah, and challenging just to actually say, yeah, just to actually shake people out of comfortable assumptions oh, about thank you so much. Yeah, your your framing of the world is what you expect it to be. Because of course, yeah, this is this is one of the fundamental radicalisms of the way that you write, isn't it? To actually say we yeah, need to be as centered more yeah, more than centered in our stories, not what the hell you've done to us. This is oh my gosh, that's a really good I I always try thank you, because I always try to make the point being, you know, survival and joy and continuation. Mm. Um there was a point after the manuscript was finalized and it had been sent to readers and, and different things that I'd I told you, I was like, oh God, this is such a depressing book. I don't know. <laughs> know why i don't know why i would read it but then so many people came back saying that it gave them a lot of hope and i actually did not expect that but so many people have told me this book gives them hope and i think it's just maybe the hope is in just the world finally being reflected the way it actually feels to a lot of people rather than you know this weird framing that excludes us from the conversation because i've certainly because i have always written about the environment i have found myself on panels and different things where other people's viewpoints are privileged and centered, mm, mm. even if they're completely wrong, even if, yeah. if environmentally, yeah. even if they're completely wrong and and quite steeped in supremacisms, they will be centered. And so I think this was just a re- the book was an opportunity because I have a captive audience, so to speak. Of like, clever, <laughs> the, the books are opportunities to do that, right? Because yeah. you yeah. won't get interrupted or you know uh, potentially misinterpreted in this way, and you get to sort of um yeah but i think but i think one of the again one of the radically generous things about about the book is precise yeah and i say generous because it is generous to actually elevate a different yeah what appears to to readers initially as a different viewpoint which actually as you go through the book is revealed to be not different because of anything other than radically putting in place a perspective that for xyz reasons is unfamiliar and demanding of the reader well actually it shouldn't be as unfamiliar just simply because yeah just simply because you know you're claiming a, a worth and a validity for viewpoints which 
you know, shouldn't have to claim that because they should be respected no, and exactly. heard in that way. And I think in the back of people's heads, people actually already know this stuff. Like if you know that Britain was a colonizer, of course you know that yeah, colonialism yeah, yeah. contributed to the ravaging of lands and the stealing of land for, you know, like turning farms into factories and all of this stuff. Like people like you and I certainly know that, but I don't think it, we even get a chance to speak about it enough. And this is what I want the book to be sort of a conversation piece again though written in the sort of the wonderful days where it's not like bullet point make this a conversation piece make this conversation piece and when you say like i i love and i'm very grateful for what you've said about the book because for readers who are like myself indonesian women from maybe indigenous cultures who read it they're like um i had a message from two Indonesian women in Chicago who said they read the book and they were crying because they had not, they, they were working on environmental injustice. They're researchers in environmental injustice. And it was so rare to have our point of views encapsulated in that way. So it's for me, I guess that's two sides of the coin is one, I'm grateful that people will think, oh, such a completely new, different perspective that actually I already knew at the back of my head. Why don't I foreground this understanding of history and the present, you know? Um, and the other side is I'm writing it as myself. And it's great to know that there are other people like me who have, you know, I mean, Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world by population. There's so many voices that I don't think reach the English language, but are similar to mine. I think I don't think I'm alone in that. And I think everything I've learned is, as you know, from from the launch that you kindly beautifully read in, like so much of what I know about the environment is just like from my family and from, you know, activist friends and stuff. It's communal knowledge. So I owe a lot of people for that. It's not something, you know, I'm not I'm not an environmental expert by any means. I just absorb what I've been around and, and experience, you know, that prompted a thought there. It's not about hopefulness. I think it is about, so I guess it's about perspective, isn't it? And just actually the challenge here that there is almost to what we've come to expect in a Western-centric viewpoint when we're thinking about ecology, thinking about the Anthropocene, and actually the fact that yeah, things that might look like alarm bells, things that might look like warnings, have actually been coming from somewhere for 15, 20 years more than that anyway. And now, you know, and, you know, there's almost a frustration that, yeah, we've been telling you this and you've not been listening. Hundreds of years, not 15, 20 years. Like, you know, everyone, you know, indigenous ancestors that were colonized fully knew that this would happen, that if you privatize all the lands and use them for whatever means and junk up the world, bad things will happen. Um, so this is truly just the tail end. This is how bad it's gotten. It's not, it's not new at all. Um, and having grown up around indigenous activism, I know that, you know, so much of what we try to get across doesn't even get across in, you know, mainstream national media, um, but is only, validated when like a white scientist says that it's you know because indigenous knowledge isn't valued so it's like way beyond 15 20, it's like hundreds of years of this stuff um and people literally dying to try and protect their lands and this concept of nature yeah i don't i don't know if i even have you heard of tommy pico have you read his poetry 
I haven't, no. Tommy Pico is an indigenous poet, queer poet, um, and his book mm. is, uh, I think it's called Nature. Yeah, Nature Poem, published 2017 by Tin House. I really love that book, and I thought it was another friend book to indigenous species. And that's another book that, to me, just really flies in the face of what is meant when you talk about, quote, unquote, nature. Like, spend more time in nature, get to know nature. And not about, you know, and in his case, as an indigenous American poet, it was playing with these stereotypes of Native Americans must be closer to nature. And he's writing about being in New York City, mm-hmm. you know, like eating junk food and like dating and all of this stuff. Yeah. And like, well, for him, like, yeah, this is nature. I am interacting with like the natural world, but this, I'm subverting all your expectations of what a, a Native American <laughs> man should be in terms of writing about nature. It was hilarious to me. And I was like, oh, I love this. And I, this is how yeah, I write, but in yeah. a different way, I thought, um, in terms of like, Ecofeminisms, and um, because I think a lot of history is told through the eyes of colonizers. There's so much stuff yes. that's related yeah. to yeah. like CIA aided genocide in Indonesia. Who knows about that? You know, like um, the killing off of the feminist movement in Indonesia. Literally, who knows about that? And that's all yeah. tied to yeah. privatization of lands. So for me, the words "nature poem" are so triggering in a weird way. They trigger this book. They triggered this book because um, it was so much of just being fed other people's perspective of what nature is, a sanitized Mm, settler mm. colonial perspective. Uh, Climate change is new, environmental justice is new, all of this stuff. And I I think there's there's always been over the course, especially of the last year, this weird sort of reverse echo in a sense, in you know, the utilitarian way that we've been encouraged to use nature as a way of, you know, getting through the pandemic, as it were, you know, go for go for long walks and you know, and timing time in greenery will make you feel better. Now, yeah, I know that at some level there is always going to be this sense of, you know, nature as a resource to you know to be used i mean it's hard to shake that you know economic driven way of thinking that you know that has been happening for 400 years plus but i think there's um but there's a real almost you can draw the continuum can't you from yeah yeah from as you say nature poem which sort of superficially yeah, suggests something benign and something lovely and something reflect, you know, reflecting and spiritual. Rather than something punk, which is yeah, more like yeah, which uh, yeah, the sense. But then all the way through to yeah, if you take that utilitarian, that unacknowledged utilitarian bent to its end, mm-hmm. you get orangutan, which yeah, which is which is where just rapaciousness exceeds capacity and there is absolutely no sense of of the circularity that's needed to restore or any or, or anything like that as well mm-hmm. and 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 I, and I guess one of the things that the the book does is show the the perilous the perilousness of an extractive mindset and an unacknowledged extractive mindset. Oh, it makes me so happy to hear you say that. 
it makes me so happy to use it, even though it's such a dark subject. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not clapping at the, <laughs> at the perilousness of extraction. I'm like, yes, yeah. no, I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. yeah, listeners, we are, we are not, we are not praising the perilousness of an extractive mindset. Let us be clear. <laughs> yes, um, and thank you for drawing that line because of those ex- that the extreme of you know utilitarian understandings of nature leading to ultimate emergenten. Um, because I don't think of nature as a resource, and I think a lot of indigenous peoples, whether you know they're from Indonesia or elsewhere, refuse to think of nature as resource. Because like it's, if I'm against the financialization of nature, I'm against things like biodiversity credits because it's so it's just an excuse for businesses, frankly. And I've you know I've seen this my whole life um, to say we're sustainable, we're you know like shifting basically shifting pollution here because. We've bought credits here. You know, it's just, it's shifting the, the problem and it's maddening to see on the ground level. It's really dangerous. Um, and the externality still has to go somewhere. Yes, and the, and the corruption that is involved in governments, you know, with carbon credits and everything. It's just, um, I refuse to think of nature as a resource. And it's funny because like everything, okay. So <laughs> in 2019, I was finishing up my PhD. And the thing that kept me sane was, uh, the video game Stardew Valley, <laughs> which you might have heard of, which I became completely obsessed with. I had multiple characters. I was married to a doctor. We had two kids in this scenario. <laughs> it was like the whole life I had. I was, you know, like like making my own preserves and all of this, you know, um, just to, you know, like put off the idea of looking at a bibliography from one more time. Um, yeah, and, yeah. I, and, you know, helped me get it done. Um, but I just realized, like, oh, gosh, this is one of the most popular video games in the world. And people love this idea of using things as resources in this game. People think about the gamification of, you know, of life as we need to. People think the issue is, oh, we don't have enough natural resources. And what that sentence doesn't state is for what, right? To feed this Western consumerist lifestyle We've been killing off other parts of the world to feed our needs and there's not enough to feed our needs. So, oh no, what do we do? Rather than the whole idea of thinking of this ancestral rainforest as a resource is messed up. (laughs) It's messed up because you're killing off another person's way of life, you know? And so, and I think, and, and I think that that in of itself speaks to a couple of things, doesn't it? One is the thing that you can smell and feel in the air right now, which is the, let's for want of a better term, call it the Nusk Bezos um, justifications for exploration, which is basically... Um, uh, one planet exhausted. Let's go. Let's go find another. One. Yes, which is you know, I mean, of I, course it would go to that extreme. Of course, yeah, yeah. Mars. But yeah. I, yeah. I, so yeah. So there's uh, yeah. There's that going on. But just uh, this. I, 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 yeah, I, and yeah, I, I wonder, yeah, to the extent to which poetry is ever an answer to anything. But just actually, just the, that. It does it, you know, can actually thinking about these things in ways that don't come from the economic, that don't come from the pros and, you know, and the pros of, of economic systems, actually start to reconcile us more to the fact that, you know, as a species, you know, we have, you know, we, we have 
as little or as much purchase, yeah, or not purchase, but yeah, right to be on the planet as every other species. Sorry, I had to stop myself swearing. <laughs> um, yeah, and just actually, how do we actually start to shift a mindset that actually says, look, just because of an accident of good fortune, we're temporarily top of a food. But chain. I think also this, the way that people speak about environmental crisis as a human species problem, which I do as well. Mm, I do as mm, well in Old Point mm. Orangutan. I certainly write about that, right? But it does tend to gloss over the fact that it's it's sort of fatalist in a way to say, well, humans are like this, so we should stop being like this. But actually, so many humans, like indigenous activists are being killed and kidnapped and assaulted to try and not be like this, you know? So it's not all humans. It's like a certain colonial understand yeah again again you you tie it back to it's humans resisting um thinking in a a mode of thought which is 400 years old if yeah 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 effectively and so i guess yeah and so i guess i'm just sort of poking at the idea that how much can poetry actually start to shift things nudge things at the edges i mean I, i mean Clearly, you write in you write in this mode because you can, and it has an impact on readers. But when, but when you're thinking about um, where the poems sit in your larger work and your art and your activism as well, do you do you delineate between them? Do you draw distinctions, or is it no. it's all part of part of the? One? I think what I try and do as a chronically ill person is listen to my body. And I always need to expel a lot of energy because <laughs> it's, it's really <laughs> annoying being like an Aries in a chronically ill body. <laughs> like I have so much energy, but I'm so tired so much of the time. So sometimes it's like, gosh, I really, okay, maybe all I can do is like write a poem on my voice note on my phone with my thumb. Mm-hmm. And that's all I can do for tonight in terms yeah, of that, yeah, as yeah, yeah, yeah. all of us, you know, sometimes experience. And sometimes it's like um, I'm wrapping up a, a welcome commission right now that's launching in a couple of weeks which is five large-scale digital collages and a poem for each um and so that's i like okay so when you said earlier that you love structures because of the way you know your your education and the way you think and and also you work in in advertising and branding and marketing that's a lot about what are the structures here how can we disrupt or you know work amenably for me i i don't like structures but i like um constraints which I think is a different thing. Like, give me a prompt. I love a prompt. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, write yeah. about a chihuahua. Oh, I love that. But, you know, cons- but, but don't, I don't like having structure dictated to me necessarily. So for me, even with the creation of the book, the structure came organically. And it feels to me like that in terms of where I, where I u- choose to use my energy. And sometimes I need a bit of a break after writing a whole book. And I want to, you know, focus on my visual art because that's creativity, but in a way that is not using the same part of the brain necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just about managing flow. Yeah. Do you do you do you do you feel or detect any parallels between your poetry writing practice and your visual art practice? Or I think so. I think they're just like I think that the cover is as much. Of, of Ultimatum Orangutan that I made is as much a part of the book as the poetry. Mm, and I think mm, it's mm, in mm. the same vein. 
Yeah, I think my visual art is a little punk. And in a way, because I mostly do digital collage and performance installation and that kind of thing. And even like when I make short films for performance, they're based on digital collage. It's kind of the same way as poetry in terms of like we're scavenging for words. We're just rearranging them. And I'm just doing the same with pixels. I'm just copy pasting and, you know, it's just right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Do you get do you get similar dates? Or, or is is the poems the only place where you get the days? I do get the days, but it's more a case of me deciding structure in advance for visual stuff. I storyboard a lot, okay. like I storyboarded the cover for Ultimate Orangutan, and ah. then and then it and then it turns out being something like by storyboard I mean just like sketch out like or have in my head a basic framework, and then inevitably like in the photoshopping things emerge like I didn't expect to have the purple I didn't expect it to look like this but it just happens and um during that process so I think it's for illustration for me it's a matter of not getting to do exactly what I had in my head but going in a different direction <laughs> that's somewhat simple mm. <laughs> um, and I think with poetry it's just the doing and then you look back on it and you're like oh it was that you know would you say that collating a collection is post-production there are there are bits which are yeah um <laughs> i am the sort of creative that has been on shoots no to say it's okay we'll fix it in the edit <laughs> and i've relied i've relied far too much on that i freely, <laughs> I freely admit that um where are the analogies i think so the hardest thing at least in my experience, of any form, any aspect of creativity, whether it is a book, whether it is a even a 10-second video, is any form of fidelity to the vision that you originally had in your head and trying to achieve what you need to get close to that fidelity, knowing that you necessarily lack the skills to 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 get what you need to get to even come close to that fidelity but then also trusting that you will discover in the process moments of serendipity that it ultimately make the thing better mm. than your initial vision was oh, um and blending all those together in the face of all sorts of different pressures. So, you know, whether that's client pressure, whether that's budget pressure, whether that's time mm-hmm. pressure, whether that is audience expectation pressure, whether that is your own vanity pressure, mm-hmm. whether that is your sense of your sense of, damn, I really need this book to try and sell or be noticed pressure and cleave to or trim to what you think might be might be in place there's yeah and i'm not necessarily saying that any of those are wrong and bad but you know ultimately the hardest thing is to hold to a sense of this thing that you're making is a thing that only you can uniquely make and so you owe it to yourself as a creator to make it as close to your original vision as possible but have the humility to know when chance circumstance others can actually raise it and make it better as well and that play that play through collaboration 
that's the hardest thing to uh, uh, yeah at least to hold on to especially in that analogy of production when there's so much pressure on you that is so well said and i think that um you have inspired me to get to apply that ethos of serendipity in post-production or production or whatever to how we want our books to be received because i think so because i think that you never really know like i think i remember when rope came out four years ago i was still so new to the uk relatively speaking and i wasn't really sure you know i was like oh maybe this is a slow burn and i wouldn't have expected that like four years later it would be national center for writing book of the month you know like book club um topic like you just you just never know. And same with Saffron Jack. I think that because our books are coming out during the pandemic, we have to be kind to ourselves and understand that just like you said, with, with, you know, with the humility of understanding serendipity, chance and circumstance, we never know where books are going to go or how they're going to be received. Yeah. And I, th- I and I think, and I think this is almost why out of all the possible things that you can do with words, with writing, there is a there is a magic in terms of embracing that daze. Just simply, yeah, I tell us, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I'm reminded of a moment where a couple of years ago, someone was on tour in Baltimore, and yeah, you know, just sent me a picture of the classroom that they were reading, they were teaching in that day, and one of my poems was on the. And, you know, and, uh, you know, I've never been to Baltimore. I don't know the teacher. I don't know the school. And yet, there the poem is. Yeah, out of all the potential arts or the arts that we could do, there is something about, there is something about that way that you can just, through a phrase, through a poem, you know, lodge in someone's head and slowly but surely start to orient them up and change yeah and change that perspective i think we sometimes we're sometimes as a class of writers too modest about that or to yeah or we don't we don't like to draw attention to the fact that there is that power potentially there oh it's just a poem we say oh it's yeah don't because worry if about we it. did who poem. knows what could happen it was... <laughs> yeah yeah but again to you know to tie it back to orangutan you know that yeah there will undoubtedly be readers of the book who get that who just have the effectively their heads scraped open mm-hmm. yeah you know, because they haven't appreciated the colonial aspects to effectively ecocide before and so just in doing that you suddenly rock their world and change the axis oh, upon which they think i hope so and yeah and and that is a and that's more than public service that's actually power at that point and yeah, and you know that one of them will start joining the dots and start going, okay, so now things have to change. I hope. Yeah. I hope why so. would you? Why would you relinquish that power? <laughs> why you know? would you? Let's keep writing forever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I feel like we're coming to a bit of a natural, and, a natural yeah. point here. Um, I'd, I'd like a request. Can I ask you to read one more poem to, to, to go out on? And it's paradoxically the opening poem. Oh, a specific poem. Okay. Aww. A specific poem. 
because I think I I, I especially in the last stanza there I think yeah I, I I think that takes us out in a in a in a very apt and positive you know this way. this used to be the titular poem my book was called Sequelae it's as you know from from the manuscript I sent you it was called Sequelae because of this poem and the idea for the title okay uh thank you for appreciating it. hello Sequelae. Because another storm is humming, you squat by a creek, chin out, tease the fringes of river intoxicant, thumb and forefinger dunked in the wet, breathing air that makes you a statistic, low to the ground, lung-filling spatter. Pry yourself from rushing water, Face what the minnow knows, what stoic ducks understand, what tree banks feel as a seeping in. A falling outwards of equilibrium hunts a sore chest, senses insects leaving the grounds where you make fast cover, temporary, walls already so pale, so fading, ivory as the full teeth of ghosts. Find heat emanating bodies, find axe and blanket. No hurdling yourself under tables. You have always been so open to skin-piercing things. There is no safe house. In your hands is how to seed earth. You have always known how to tell time by sky. Thank you, Rishi. Amazing. Thank you so much. That was marvellous. Thanks for listening and thanks to Oka and Rishi for their time. If you've got questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook and you can find out about all of our events, our workshops and catch up on the podcast at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation today over on the website by going to the Support Us page. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and I'll catch you on the next episode.